We're starting John chapter 4, and we'll get right into the text. Now, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. If you go back to chapter 3, for the end, starting in verse 25, it says, Now a discussion arose between John's disciples and a Jew over a purifying, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, here he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So twice it mentions Jesus was baptizing, but then we have the clarifying point in chapter 2, verse 4, although Jesus himself did not baptize. Commentators have seen here how the relationship between Jesus and his ministers is so close. Jesus acts through his ministers in such a way in which if we're really acting as Jesus' ministers, it's as if they see Jesus acting. And this is brought to its highest spiritual realm in the sacraments, especially at Mass where we have the priest acting in persona Christi. But that whole concept is here, it's a bit veiled, but otherwise, why would John make this point that, and he says it twice, that Jesus was baptizing, although not Jesus, but his disciples? So just a point for us to contemplate. Verse 3, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, there was no physical necessity for him to pass through Samaria to get to Galilee. He was in the south. He was going to the north. And right in the middle of Israel, between the south, which is Judea, and the north, which is Galilee, is the land of Samaria. But Jesus could easily have skirted around Samaria, just gone up the coast, and not encountered the Samaritans at all. So the necessity here is not physical. It's spiritual. Jesus is going to fulfill the desires of his father. So for him, it was necessary. He wanted to convert the Samaritans, and particularly this woman, for many reasons, as we'll see as the chapter unfolds. He came to a city in Samaria called Sychar, near the well that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And that's in Genesis chapter 48, when Jacob bequeathed that land to Joseph on his deathbed. In verse 6, Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was, with his journey sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There's a lot here. Whenever a well is mentioned in the Old Testament, particularly with the patriarchs, that is a meeting place where the women come out and gather the water. So if you want to meet your future wife, you don't go to a, a bar. <laughs> you go to the well. <laughs> With respect to the patriarchs, we have Genesis chapter 24, verses 14 to 16, where Abraham's servant finds Rebekah for Abraham's son Isaac to marry. How does he find that future spouse, he goes to a well. With respect to Abraham's servant, 
He asks Rebecca for a drink of water to find out if she's the one. Because he had previously prayed, Lord, help me find the appropriate spouse for my master's son, Isaac. Let it be the woman who, when I ask for water, gives me water. Well, she not only gives him water, she also offers to water all his camels. So he knows right away that's the woman who has a servant's heart, even to the extent of sacrificing, because that would have been a lot of work for her to feed all his camels. Camels drink a lot. And then in Exodus chapter 2, remember the event where Moses killed someone in Egypt who had been abusing a fellow Israelite. He tried to hide the body, but it came to Pharaoh's knowledge. Moses now fears for his life. He flees to Midian, and he goes to a well. And there's some women there watering their flock, and he is met with other shepherds who try to drive off these women, and he defends the daughters that are at the well, And then they go back to their father, and their father says, well, why did you leave him out there? Invite him to dinner. He he protected you. So they go get him. They invite him to dinner. And eventually he, the father, gives his eldest daughter to Moses as wife, Zipporah. All of these examples, there's also Jacob in Genesis chapter 29 meets Rachel at a well and at noon. So all of these little details are in the background of this very important verse where Jesus now, because the Jews would have known these passages backwards and forwards, they knew that. Jesus deliberately goes to a well because he knows this woman will be there and he is trying to enter into a spousal relationship with her. And she's there at the sixth hour, which is noon, which is the heat of the day. And she's there alone. She should have gone out with the other women in the cool of the morning or in the evening, but because of her checkered background, which we'll learn later on in the chapter, she's been either despised by the other women because of her many previous marriages, or she herself is so ashamed that she doesn't want to be seen with anyone, and so she deliberately comes out at noon when she can be alone. But it's the heat of the day, so she's suffering, she's alone, she's vulnerable, miserable, and here comes Jesus, knowing all of that. Notice how Jesus approaches her. He knows that she's vulnerable, she's hurting, she is alone, and he begins by asking her, not just a question, but being very vulnerable and saying, I need your help. I am weak and thirsty and tired. Please give me a drink. So he's trying to draw this woman out of herself into a conversation, knowing full well that he's breaking all kinds of taboos because the Samaritans and Jews don't get along for a whole lot of reasons. The woman knows that, and that's why her initial response is pretty hostile. Because she says, how is it that you, a Jew, it's a derogatory term for Samaritans. Ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus doesn't care about all these taboos. He's breaking all of them. He's a rabbi, a man. He's speaking to not just a woman, but a Samaritan. He shouldn't be doing that. 
He answers her not harshly, but he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Two important terms there in that verse, the gift of God. What does the gift of God mean? Well, actually, in the scriptures, we know that because there are various references to this gift of God. If you turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, this is just after Pentecost, and Peter has just preached a homily that has cut the people to the heart, and they say, brethren, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there we know the gift is the Holy Spirit. There's many other passages. If you just turn to Acts chapter 8, verses 18 to 20. Now this is the account of Simon Magus. In verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So there the gift of God is associated with the Holy Spirit. Now that's where we get the term simony, where that's the awful offense of purchasing ecclesial offices, which was obviously forbidden. But you see it here with Simon Magnus, who wants to purchase the ability to confer the Holy Spirit. Peter says, this is the gift of God. It's not for sale. Now, he could have had it if he simply asked of God genuinely. Finally, in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, we have this remarkable statement. Well, let's just start at verse 1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's many other texts, but I just wanted to give that at least so that we know what the gift of God is that Jesus is referring to in John chapter 4. But what is this living water that's also referred to in verse 10? There's many different meanings, potentially, which could mean simply running waters, as opposed to the still stagnant waters, let's say, of a pool that's just sort of sitting there. You prefer to have running waters to drink from because they're cleaner, purified. So living waters refers to that, simply running water. That's just on a physical level. It could also refer to the bath that a woman would take prior to her marriage. She would bathe in these living waters, purifying herself for the wedding. That's also in the scriptures. It could also refer to baptismal waters. 
It could refer to the living waters in the temple in the Old Testament where a person would purify themselves in these living waters that would be right in the temple before going in to offer sacrifices. But the true meaning here is actually God himself, the living waters. Let's just turn to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where this is very clearly set out. Two evils, this is God speaking through the prophet, two evils have my people done. They have forsaken me, the source of living waters. They have dug themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. So God is referring to himself there as the source of living waters. But now Jesus is going to say, well, actually, I'm the source. Because, of course, Jesus is God, but she doesn't know that yet. But he's going to say, I'm the source of living water. Now, we know this because in John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day, Jesus stood up and proclaimed, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living waters. Now this he said about the Spirit. Jesus is saying, come to me, the source of living waters, in John chapter 7. Now, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but living waters is such an important term in the scriptures these waters that give life, that what Jesus is inviting the woman to and us is to become this source of living waters. That's really what he wants. He wants her conversion. He wants her to be espoused to him in this nuptial covenant so that she can be a source of living waters. To everyone she meets, which we will find out she does immediately, she goes to her townspeople, and huge conversion. She becomes a source right away. But as applied to us, we just have to go back into the scriptures and understand this source of living water. So in Genesis chapter 2, we have this description of the Garden of Eden with water coming right down the center of the garden and watering the whole Garden of Eden and then breaking off into four different rivers that water the four corners of the earth. And that's the first hint of these waters that give life. It's brought to even a greater degree in Ezekiel chapter 47. We don't have time to read, but I'll just give you the Cole's notes on this. So the Jews at that time were really suffering because they had been conquered by Babylon. And Ezekiel is saying there will be a temple, because the temple had been destroyed, there will be a future temple, and from that temple will flow waters. It'll begin very small, it'll just be a trickle. And it's flowing eastward from the temple. And remember how that goes, so it's just a trickle, and then it's measured. Ezekiel is standing in this little trickle, it then becomes ankle deep. When it's measured again, another thousand feet, it's knee deep, and then it becomes waist deep, and then becomes a flowing river that cannot be traversed. And it flows all the way down into the Dead Sea and gives life to that salt water that's dead. All kinds of life blooms. And on both sides of that river are these trees that give fruit 
abundantly. That is meant to be a prophecy about the future temple of God. Well, that's part of the living waters. So the question is, what about Christ on the cross who says, I thirst? And certainly he is thirsting for souls, as he is thirsting here in John chapter 4 for this woman's heart. But these living waters culminate on the cross where this spear is thrust into the side of Christ and out from his side flow water and blood. And then Jesus breathes his last, which is the Holy Spirit. So we have the Holy Spirit, we have the waters of baptism that purify us for our nuptial union with Christ. And then we have the Eucharist. So that's the culmination of these living waters. But then you go all the way to the end of the Bible in the last chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, and you have in the first verse this stream of living waters flowing down the center of the temple, this heavenly Jerusalem, and the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden are on both sides of the river, and they just continually produce fruit and leads for healing of the people. So throughout the Bible, we have this whole progression of living waters, the point is that we, who have been baptized and drink from the Eucharist, are called to be this source of living water so that wherever we go, whoever we encounter, we bring the Holy Spirit, which is in us, to our environment and we become this source of living waters. That's the heart of this chapter. And that's what Jesus is trying to get this woman to accept. And us, too, because we can forget this and say, yeah, I was baptized as a child, but I no longer go to Mass. And forget what we've been called to, the gift that we've been given. The Holy Spirit dwells within us because God wants us to give God away and become the source of living waters. It is very difficult to live out. There's no question of that. And that's why we have the sacraments. So we come to Mass, we get beat up during the week, <laughs> we come to Mass on Sunday and we drink of the Holy Spirit and we receive Christ in the most intimate way, our bridegroom and we become refreshed and then we go out and we do our best aided by the Holy Spirit to be that source of living waters and then we come back to Mass now some people come to Mass every day if you can do that that's amazing but that's the opportunity we have as Catholics no, he just asked a question out of his need. He's just trying to engage you in conversation to break down those barriers. Not right away. He didn't introduce himself as the Messiah or anything like that. He's simply coming to her and trying to bring her out of her shame and engage her in this conversation. And he knows that she's thirsty because he knows the human heart, as he knows us all. And he knows that she does not want to keep coming back to this well. So he's going to offer her this living water, which will become a source in her of these waters. She wants living water. She doesn't want this stagnant well water. She wants living waters. So just on a physical level, she's at least interested. And that's how the whole conversation begins. And notice there's a progression in her response to Jesus. First of all, he, she doesn't even acknowledge him except as a Jew in a derogatory way. And then, after he's offered her this gift of living water, she says, Sir, give me this living water. 
She's now opening herself up to him. So Jesus is taking it one step at a time. In verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She wants that living water. But on a human level, she knows Jesus doesn't have a bucket. There's no way he can get water from this well. She brings that to his attention. And then again, sort of a slight, she says, Are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? Now, there's a bit of irony here from John because she's standing in the presence of God himself who created the whole universe, including the well. She's beginning to open up her heart, yes. And she wants that living water. Jesus responds to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to life eternal. Now she's really interested. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Now she's very interested, but there's a stumbling block that Jesus has to address. It's her moral life, and he's going to address it right now. Because there's no way she can be converted and come into a relationship with Christ as a bride. She's got all this baggage. Now Jesus will help the woman encounter herself in her brokenness, which is key to conversion which is what the Holy Spirit does. That prevenient grace that I was referring to earlier is that grace that helps us to recognize our fallenness, our sins, and now confess those sins, repent, which then opens us up to more grace. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. Now there's a lot here. Jesus is not just interested in this woman. He's interested in the Samaritans in general. And commentators have noticed that the five husbands that this woman had previously had can be interpreted in a spiritual sense, or at least in a more broad sense, as to the Samaritan people in general. To give you the background, in 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered the Northern Ten Tribes because they had sinned so badly, the Northern Ten Tribes, and walked away from the covenant with God that God left them to be conquered. Now when the Assyrians conquered the Ten Tribes, they scattered them among pagan nations. That was their practice, to weaken the enemy so that they would never rise up again. And so they just deported him into other pagan lands, although some were left and some came back. But in that vacuum, the Assyrians would import different pagan peoples to occupy the Holy Land, those ten tribes, the territory. This is set out very, very clearly in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 to 31. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just explain what happened. The king of Assyria, his name was Sargon, 
imported five different pagan peoples into the territory of the ten northern tribes. And each of those pagan peoples had their own particular god, a pagan god. And that pagan god was referred to generally as Baal. Baal is a term that can mean husband, although not in the sense that we would understand the nuptial relationship between equal partners. It would be more of a master, servant, slave, or husband-concubine relationship, that domination. So when these five foreign peoples came in, they came in with their five foreign gods, and they kept practicing their paganism. Although, gradually, they would accept the Israelites' faith in Yahweh as well. But there would be this mix. But it would be such a skewed mix that there would be all kinds of practices that were not holy. Because some of these pagan nations had weird practice. Some of them actually sacrificed their children to their God. And they brought all this in. They would only accept the first five books of the Torah. They didn't accept any of the prophets or the Psalms or anything like that. Just the five books of the Torah. And then they misinterpreted several verses in their favor. For example, they would say that the mountain upon which Abraham wanted to sacrifice his son Isaac was actually Mount Gerizim. And they built their own shrine on Mount Gerizim. They worshiped God on that mountain. They would not go to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple. So you see all of these reasons why the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. Yes, the two southern tribes would last for a couple more centuries until the Babylonians came in and then destroyed their temple as well because they continued to sin. But right here, these five husbands that Jesus is referring to is actually referring to the five pagan gods that are now inhabiting the Samaritans' worship and skewing their preparation to become the pure bride of Christ. And that's got to be dealt with before there can be this marriage. And that's why he's bringing this up to this woman. Because if the woman understands her own sinfulness because of these five husbands that she had in the past, and then the one she's living with now is not her husband, and commentators have suggested that's actually Christ, because Christ is there wanting to enter into a marriage with her, but she's not able to because of her past. She's not purified, able to become a bride yet. And that's why Jesus does what he does. But he does it very gently. He doesn't scold her, berate her. He's simply pointing out the truth. And she is cut to the heart. Now she starts calling Jesus prophet, which is a term of honor. Now she's really interested in what this man has to say. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our, now she's going to change the topic here because she doesn't want to enter into her past. So she shifts the conversation. <laughs> Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She's introducing a theological dispute to skirt around her own past. And it's an important question because that's really what divided the Samaritans from the Jews. The Samaritans would not come to Jerusalem and worship with the Jews in the temple. 
And the Jews consider Samaritans unclean because of their association with their pagan gods. And so for Jesus even to ask this woman for a drink and to drink out of the same cup she's drinking from, that's just unheard of. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, which is Mount Gerizim, and you say in Jerusalem that the place where men ought to worship is Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now here he's introducing a concept that was totally unknown. Worship the Father. And not at a confined place like a mountain or a temple built with bricks and mortar. No. The time is coming. The hour is coming. Notice the hour. It's a famous theme in John's Gospel, which refers to Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection. That was the same hour that Jesus referred to when he was changing the water into the wine. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now that's true, because the Samaritans were so skewed in their worship, this intermixing of pagan idolatry into their worship, they did not know God. At least the Jews had the covenants. They weren't keeping it, but they understood the covenant. And they had the prophets, which the Samaritans rejected as uninspired. They hated each other. But they were divorced. Well, but they intermarried with these pagans and accepted the worship of pagan gods that they brought in. So there was hatred there. But the hour is coming, this is verse 23, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the Father just seeks to worship him. Now there's a veiled reference here to the Trinity because you've got the Father in the Spirit, so you've got two persons right there, and truth. Well, Christ is the truth, as he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So true worship will be worship of the Trinity, which again, the Samaritans have no idea about. Then he says in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. What does that mean, worship in spirit and truth? It certainly means not to worship confined to a particular mountain or a particular place or the Jewish temple of animal sacrifices, that's for sure. But does it simply mean this interior feeling? No, because Jesus has already told Nicodemus that you must be born again of water and the Spirit. You must be baptized. So there's baptism. And then he will, in John chapter 6, tell the disciples they must eat his body and drink his blood. So it's not just a pure interior, we're all church without any particular denomination type of concept. Yes, it is. So you've got to worship the Trinity in spirit and truth. But now, let's just turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 for a second, because here I think we need to really understand what's going on. This is Paul speaking about Christ. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So both to those who were near, which would be Jews, those who were far off would be Samaritans and Gentiles. Because God wants everyone to have access to the Father in the spirit. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built into it for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So worship of spirit and truth is actually this new temple, not built by human hands like in the Old Testament, but the heavenly Jerusalem. That's really where Jesus is trying to take this Samaritan woman and all of us. Worship in spirit and truth is in the new temple, which of course is Christ, as he said, destroy this temple, referring to the one built by Herod, and I will raise it up in three days, referring to his body, the church. So the church on earth, the one that we occupy, we're privileged to be baptized into, is this new Jerusalem on earth, oriented toward the new Jerusalem in heaven. That's clearly set out, again, if you turn to... Hebrews chapter 12, and this is why we go to Mass. And we're going to start at verse 18. This is an amazing portion of Scripture. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers entreat that no further messages be spoken to them. That's Mount Sinai, where Moses went up and got the law, there was all that theophany that scared the people. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's the old covenant. That's the old law that was given on Mount Sinai. Now here's the shift. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. Now, what is that referring to here on earth? The holy sacrifice of the Mass. This is the new Jerusalem. When we come to Mass, we're participating in the eternal liturgy that's going on in heaven, that's referred to in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, where we have the saints in heaven who are gathered around the throne, singing praises with the angels. We have the Lamb standing as those slain, which is Christ. But here on earth, the preparation, the entrance into the heavenly Jerusalem is the holy sacrifice of the Mass. 
because we are actually participating in the liturgy that's ongoing in heaven. And that's why when we are at Mass, we're surrounded by angels, because they know what's really happening on the altar. And the sprinkled blood, which is now offered to us in communion, we sing the praises of God and we hear his word. And it's a great new covenant being enacted before our eyes. And the veil separating what we do at Mass and the eternal liturgy in heaven is very thin. That's what Jesus is trying to get this woman to enter into. Because once she's converted, which she will be, she's going to go to her townspeople and bring all them into this spousal relationship with Christ. And then hopefully his church, when the church begins, and the Mass begins right away, as we know in Acts of the Apostles, the breaking of the bread is right away, and we have this great festival of angels and saints with the sprinkled blood of Christ, which is more powerful than the bloodshed of Abel. That's what Jesus is trying to get the Samaritans and us, the early church, to recognize. And they do, because you read the early church fathers. You read Ignatius of Antioch. I really highly recommend it's accessible. He wrote these letters as he was being transported in chains by the Roman officials to be thrown to the beasts. But every time he stops at one of the cities along the way, because it's a long trip, the Roman officials allowed him to meet with some of the Christians, and he would take the advantage of writing a letter and giving it to them. And these letters, he sets out very clearly, this is so early that the Eucharist is what he's actually participating in because he's going to lay down his body, St. Ignatius. He wants to be fed to the lions because that's when he truly becomes who he was meant to be. He wants to enter into this great feast. Justin Martyr, if you read in the Catechism, is very early. He sets out the entire order of the Mass, and he's really early. If you've read his apologies to the emperor, he actually, because the emperor was thinking, you're engaging in cannibalism. He says, no, no, here's what we do. And he just sets out the order of the Mass. So what the Mass was instantiated right away because of what Hebrews is trying to get us to enter into and Christ to do with this Samaritan woman. Well, the entire Sermon on the Mount is trying to get us to, like this Samaritan woman, you know, we can't just come to Mass willy-nilly with our sins, but to come to Mass living the Beatitudes, living the Sermon on the Mount, everything explodes. It's the unbloody sacrifice, that's right. The representation of the cross in an unbloody manner because Christ is doing it in heaven. He is offering himself as a sacrifice for our conversion. He brought his body, wounds and all, into the throne room of heaven. And as Hebrews says, he always lives to intercede for us. And Revelation chapter 5 has that as well. The lamb slain in heaven is at the heart of the liturgy in heaven. Okay, so now we're in verse 25 of chapter 4. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. So the Samaritans did believe that the Messiah would come because it was set out in the Torah. Deuteronomy chapter 18, if we recall, Moses said that God will send a prophet like me 
who will renew all things. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now there you've got the full revelation of Jesus, the great I am, which comes from the Old Testament, book of Exodus, when at the burning bush, remember the scene, when Moses was at the burning bush and he went to investigate and the voice came from the bush saying, take off your sandals, this is holy ground. Moses said, well, who are you? And then we have the great revelation, I am who I am, which is Yahweh. But that's what Jesus is now telling this woman. He is Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is God. Now that's an amazing revelation that he makes to her. She did, because the Samaritans didn't have all the hang-ups that the Jews had with respect to the coming of the Messiah. The Jews had all kinds of nationalistic impediments. They thought the Messiah, or at least they wanted the Messiah, to be this conquering king who would restore Israel to its primacy of power, economically and politically. The Samaritans had no such aspirations. And that's why this woman simply accepts, yes, you are the Messiah. Whereas the Jews, which were the educated rabbis and Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, could not accept that. Just then, his disciples came, verse 27. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but none said, What do you wish, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into the city, and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the city and were coming to him. So notice, once she understands that he is the Messiah, she's ready to tell everybody. No hang-ups there. Because now she realizes her whole life is changed. What formerly she thought was shameful, which was, but she thought she was shameful, and she was alone, despised by everyone. Now she's entering into this nuptial covenant with Christ himself, and she cannot but tell everyone. Yes. So letting down the jar represents, as the church fathers have noted, she is letting go of her addictions, her former life of sensual dysfunction. She's putting that down. She doesn't need it anymore. She doesn't want that water from the well that keeps her thirsty. She's found the living waters of Christ. And she is overjoyed. She wants to tell everyone. Yeah, she wants to tell everyone. She goes right into the town that formerly had despised her. Despite her reputation, she goes right into her townspeople and says, come and meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. And they know her. They know she is a woman of ill repute, and here she is, bubbling with joy. They don't mention who she is. They don't, but in the Greek Orthodox Church, they recognize this woman as Saint Potini, which means the light. In fact, they built a church in honor of her, right over the well, Jacob's Well, which exists to this day, by the way. Jacob's Well is still active. You can go, it's a pilgrimage site. You can draw water, it's 200 feet deep, but you Google it, 
You can see the church, the inside of the church, it's, and there's this opportunity. The well is right there. P-H-O-T-I-N-I. It's the Eastern Orthodox Church, St. Fotini, in Balata Village, near Nablus in the West Bank. But notice the disciples, they're like Nicodemus. They're still misunderstanding God and Christ. Because they're worried about food. She's going to tell this whole townspeople about Christ and they got out to buy sandwiches. <laughs> I mean, that's the state of their conversion because they've got all these hang-ups. And so they say to Jesus, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him food? <laughs> Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, which ultimately will be at the cross when he lays down his body and opens his side and feeds the world with his body of blood and breathes Holy Spirit. Now we come into this great portion of the story. In verse 35, Jesus says, Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Now, let's just turn, if you got the Old Testament, to Amos chapter 9, verse 13. And this is God speaking through the prophet. Yes, days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the vintager him who sows the seed. The juice of the grapes shall drip down the mountain and all the hills shall run with it. What Jesus is saying is that don't think the harvest is four months in the future. It's now. He gives the example because the same day that he converts the Samaritan woman, he sows the seed, she's already reaping the harvest. She goes to her townspeople and brings in the whole town. The sower and the reaper rejoice together. That's what Jesus wants from all of us. Now again, it's not easy, but he's saying don't think that we've got time to convert our neighbor. The time is now. And with rivers of living water flowing from us, nourished by the sacraments, there's no reason why we cannot or should not take that sense of urgency and bring it into our whole, make it the center of our lives. He's saying, I want you to evangelize, which is why the Pope since Vatican II had written encyclical after encyclical about the new evangelization and what we're trying to, all the families of parishes, this was one of the two main reasons Bishop Fabro enacted the family parishes, one, because we're running out of clergy, but secondly, because the new evangelization needs to be wrapped up. And the way to do that is to bring separate parishes together to collaborate, use best practices, use each other's resources, find out each other's charisms, which is why we're running the charisms program, which is starting again, if you haven't done it yet, to find out what our particular gifts are that we've been gifted in baptism so that we can evangelize, because if you're using the particular charism, then your evangelization is going to be very effective. If you have the gift of hospitality, for example, you can evangelize using that gift. 
if we could make our parishes welcome centers. When people come into Mass, they feel welcome. They're greeted, they're embraced, because the fields are white for harvest. That's what we're judged on. That's what we're going to be judged on. The Catechism is clear on that, whether we've evangelized, whether we've taken the risk, stepped out of our comfort zone, and invited people to come in. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Now, Paul is addressing a problem that's arisen in the church at Corinth, where there's a bit of division. What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are equal, and each shall receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. In Jesus' time, the apostles were going to reap the harvest. They didn't plant, they didn't labor. It was the prophets of the Old Testament who labored and who were put to death. And it was Christ. The apostles came in in the early church and they just reaped the whole Roman Empire because those seeds had been planted. And same for us. Each of us do our own work, our labor. We don't worry about our neighbor and say, oh, he's got these charisms, why don't I have these charisms? We're in this together and we will be rewarded based on our labor. So back to John chapter 4, verse 37. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is saying this to his own apostles. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. It's a major theme in John's gospel. The whole gospel is a court scene. There's witnesses on the prosecution side and the defense. It's going to end up at the passion of Christ. But we're called to give testimony. And what's the testimony from the woman? He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. This woman, this Samaritan, is not only a converted sinner, she is now an apostle, like Mary Magdalene. I have seen the Lord. That's what we have to say. Our testimony is, well, how has Christ worked in my life? How has he changed me? This is why I go to Mass. To be a witness means you have to have some kind of personal eyewitness account. So when someone asks us about the faith, just to say, well, I've read somewhere, or I, well, someone told me about the Mass. No, no. This is what I have encountered. This is what it means to me. God worked in my life. Witness means martyr. It's the same translation. And today to be a witness, to tell people what God has done in my life, well, not everyone's going to accept that. But it's the testimony. Yeah. Be willing to. Right. In verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. These Samaritans who hate the Jews now are asking Jesus, who is a Jew, to stay with them two days, which means he would have to be actually staying at their house. 
eating their food. So they're transformed, these townspeople, because of what the woman said. Verse 41, and many more believe because of his word, Jesus' word to the Samaritan. Notice in chapter 2, verses 23 to 24 and 25, and I'll read it for you. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. But Jesus did not trust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man, for he himself knew what man was. To have faith just because of the signs, because of the miracles, Jesus says, is not enough. But to have faith because of the word that the Samaritan woman now has received, that's going to be a faith that's going to bear fruit. And that's what Jesus is saying. Sign of Jonah. Because yeah. Yeah. the Pharisees keep asking for more signs because they're not satisfied with what they've seen. But this Samaritan woman has accepted the word of God and she's truly converted. And then the townspeople say, it's no longer because of your words they're referring to the words of the woman that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. So now they've heard God's word, and they accept Christ. And we know it, that indeed, this is the Savior of the world. Now the whole townspeople are calling Jesus Savior of the world. We have this progression from, you're a Jew, what are you doing asking me questions, to sir, to now I know you're a prophet, to the woman saying, you are the Christ, and now we have the townspeople saying you are the savior of the world. So this whole progression from darkness to light. Just like Nicodemus going from darkness to light. That's a common theme in this Gospel of John. And we're, we're called to as well. So we'll end there because the next part of this chapter takes into account the healing of the official son. And it's past 11.30, so we'll pick this up next Monday. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word we have heard this morning coming from Christ in the scriptures. We thank you for this great revelation. Help us to assimilate, to believe even more, and to proclaim like the Samaritan woman the good news with joy. And let us rejoice by saying, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.